coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. The malvertising campaign that's targeting routers, the script kitties that got a talking to, and the avalanche malware crime ring leader is on the run. Plus, your questions are rock and roundup and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 297 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on December 15th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our downloads, our live streams, and all that goodness is powered by Scale Engine. Go over to scaleengine.com and see what it can do for you. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. It's Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello. Hello, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. We have, uh, I was, I, I didn't get the final numbers before the show started, but I believe we have ourselves a really big show. The show notes are six pages long of notes for today's episode. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff in there. So I'm looking forward to it, Alan. And uh, do you want to jump right into this first one that uh, is a combination of multiple things we've talked about on this show? Malvertising, jumping from either a Windows box or an Android device to take over your router. This seems like sort of worst case scenario type stuff, Alan. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is uh, a and we're exploit kit uh, for, that's being used in malvertising. Uh, but it's implanting itself uh, on your router so that it affects all your computers on your network, including ones that never saw the malvertising. In- Whoa, interesting. Explain, mm-hmm. sir, explain. So uh, Proofpoint, which is a research company, has uh, reported frequently uh, this year about the decline uh, of use of exploit kits uh, and the activity involved around them. Uh, exploit kits, though, are still vital components to most malvertising operations, uh, exposing large numbers of users to malware via malicious ads. Uh, but since the end of October of this year, we have seen an, uh, an improved version of the DNS changer exploit kit uh, used in ongoing malvertising campaigns. Uh, DNS changer uh, attacks Internet routers via potential victims' web browsers. Uh, the exploit kit does not rely on browser or device vulnerabilities, but rather vulnerabilities in the victim's home or small office router. Uh, most often, DNS changer works through the Chrome browser on Windows desktops and Android devices. That's their target now. Whereas mm. the target used to often be, you know, Internet Explorer or people running old yeah. Flash. Yep. This one is uh, targeting even fully patched Chrome because it's not uh, depending on an exploit in Chrome or something. It's depending on the fact that your browser or your uh, router isn't secured properly. Uh, however, once routers are compromised, all users connected to that router, regardless of their operating system or browser, are vulnerable to attack and further malvertising. Mm. So the router attack appears to happen in waves that are likely associated with ongoing malvertising campaigns lasting several days. Attack pattern and uh, infection chain similarities led us uh, to conclude that the actor behind these campaigns were also responsible for the cross-site request forgery uh, Soho farming operation that we saw in the first half of 2015. I think uh, we covered that one on the show as well back in 2015. So that one they were targeting selling you know, pills and so on. But uh, mm. in this one, uh, they're just doing malvertising in general. Hmm. The way this entire operation works is uh, crooks buy ads from legitimate websites, right? So they go to regular advertising companies and pretend to be a a legitimate company trying to buy uh, video, or uh, sorry, buy advertising. Sure. Um, 
the attackers insert malicious JavaScript in their ads, which uses the WebRTC uh, functionality to make a request to Mozilla's stun server to determine the user's local IP address. Oh, interesting. So they're actually using uh, the functionality built into WebRTC to figure out what your LAN IP is. Because on the internet, they only see your internet IP. Yeah. And they actually want to know what your LAN IP is so they can guess where your router is. Hmm. Well, I'm glad they built that in. Yeah. Uh, Based on your uh, local IP address, the malicious code can determine if the user is on a local network managed by a small home, uh, home or home office router. And continue to the attack. If the attack fails, the attacker now uh, or just shows a random legitimate ad and moves on. So yeah, if you're looking at this um, uh, infographic here, you can see your computer or your web browser sends a request to a regular website, which then tries to sell an ad, and they get this malvertising. Uh, and so then, based on the response from that, the malvertisers decide whether your computer or, or you are worth targeting or not. If not... They just sell the ad slot to somebody else and get the regular advertising money. However, if you are the type of person they're after, they send uh, the malvertising uh, with the DNS changer exploit kit, uh, which has some JavaScript in the ad that reads a URL out of the comment field in the graphic that it sent back um, that has a redirect URL. That causes your browser to go and fetch from this other uh, web server. And that one sends back uh, an AES key hidden in the PNG file. So they use steganography to hide an encryption key in the image you're sending you. Hmm. And only with that decryption key can you actually decrypt the payload of the exploit kit uh, that is already sitting on your computer. So this way, when they scan the exploit, when you know the advertising networks look at the JavaScript included in the uh, advertising or whatever, it, they don't see the malicious bit because it's encrypted. And they only send the key once they've decided you're valuable enough to try to risk sending their exploit code to you. And so then they send you the description key. Uh, and based on that, they then decide if your router is vulnerable or not. If it is, uh, if your router's fingerprint matches uh, one of the, I think it's 166 different fingerprints that they have, uh, then they... Uh, attack your router by trying to guess the common username and password combinations sure, for router. Sure. Uh, and then they get in there and they can change the DNS settings on your router so that all DNS requests from any device on your network will go through their DNS servers, which return fake results and, and basically redirect the ads to their network instead of the legitimate ad agency. Right? Um once you own and the DNS, can, you just you basically own yeah. any internet traffic or any you know you can just do yeah. so much. It doesn't matter if and it's then, an iOS, Android, or Windows. Exactly, uh, and by attacking the router, they get every device on your network, not just the one that got infected, right? So you know if if you take good care of your computer, but there's someone else on your network who falls for you know one of these uh, phishing attacks or whatever. Although these ones are mostly just you get from visiting legitimate websites, so you don't have to actually do anything wrong to get infected. Uh, it hits the router, and now everybody on the network is getting the viruses and so on, right? Uh, they also, if possible, open up the administrative port to the outside. So your router's web administration panel normally has that little option to allow administration over the internet, but it's turned off. But if uh, the virus is logging into your router using the username and password, it can turn it on. Of course. Uh, and now, you know, your router is, you know, just like the... Moray botnet or whatever can 
uh, be attacked that way. And then it reports its success to the exploit kit. And then in the future, when you do DNS lookups on a regular uh, website, it proxies most of those and allows them to keep working. But if it sees an ad server, it throws up a substitution ad. And then they show their ads that maybe are worth more money than, you know, or basically. <laughs> Definitely to them. <laughs> so if, if you go to, you know, some blog and they have ads on it, uh, normally the blog is getting paid for that. Mm-hmm. But the malvertising campaign swaps out the ads on the website with ads they're getting paid for. And, you know, probably to get the most money, they're like terrible porn ads or something, but, or <laughs> other malvertising. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Uh, or in some of it, they just resell it to some other ad agency to, to get the money. Yeah, but uh, why not auction it off on the lowest common and then on the, on, on the higher end paid stuff, you could probably install ransomware and whatnot. I mean, why not? Exactly. And, like, they can even split up mobile and not mobile. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, this ad agency pays best for mobile viewers, and this one pays the best for not. You know, they've, they've spent a lot of work in optimizing this. <laughs> Some of this stuff is worth stealing if you're uh, just a regular website trying to make money off advertising. You could take it a step further, too. Like, if you want to do, like, a whole platform using DNS, you could log which which of the uh, users that are infected are going to Bank of America. And then you could sell mm-hmm. off a set of Bank of America users where you already have in a, pre, a pre-existing uh, Yep. Uh, compromise them with uh, Zeus Trojan or whatever. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, uh, from the victims, the crooks deem uh, valuable. They keep doing this type of things, and uh, so yeah, they have 166 fingerprints that match routers that they'd like to attack. Um, some of those fingerprints actually match multiple router models because a lot of times, you know, there's one router model, and then like eight companies rebrand it and sell the same hardware. Yeah, sure. Especially Whereas the back, chips. Back in 2015, uh, when they were first started doing this, they only had 55 fingerprints. Some of these are quite new, like uh, the Comtrend ADSL router CT5367 and uh, 5624. Uh, the exploit for that was only a few weeks old uh, when we saw this happening in October. So the exploit had only come out September 13th, and it was already part of the kit uh, and being used in the wild in October 28th. So this isn't just older routers. Like they're they're adding new exploits to this all, all the time. And like I said, uh, where possible, in 36 of the 166 cases, they will also try to modify the network rules and allow the administration port to be opened up to the outside, exposing it, just like that uh, Murray botnet was doing. Sure. And the big thing here is that they're actually targeting Android devices as well. Because, now that you know, beyond just DNS, JavaScript. Right. So they're going beyond just DNS with the Android devices? Uh, well, no, it's just they can infect your router from your Android device. Oh, oh I see. Whereas before, yes. they wouldn't have bothered trying it if it was a mobile device. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're like, well, yeah. Chrome is Chrome, so yeah. let's just do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. when it's JavaScript, why not? Hmm. Yeah, but it's really interesting to see how they're using the AES encryption to uh, hide most of the payload and only decrypt it uh, when their server decides to send you an image that has the the uh, key in hmm. uh Stegonographically hidden in the image. Yeah, that's nice. That's a nice touch. But yeah, it says, uh, once the attacker has gained control over your router, uh, he can use it to replace legitimate ads with his own or add uh, advertisements to websites that didn't even have ads. Uh, while uh, previous malvertising campaigns usually targeted users of Internet Explorer, this campaign focuses on Chrome users on both desktop and mobile devices. Ad replacement and insertion also takes place on traffic on mobile devices, not just desktops. Uh, so far, the recommended uh, action is to update your router's firmware. Uh, most <laughs> routers are starting to add what's called cross-site request forgery protection. So normally, um, 
they had a like a basic HTML form on the uh, router web page that you you know checked some boxes and hit submit and it changed the settings. Uh, the problem with this is it's vulnerable to what's called cross-site request forgery, where some JavaScript or some other site could basically embed an iframe that went to one of these URLs on your router and made the change. Mm. Uh, and basically that request would be coming from somewhere else and the router uh, can't tell that that wasn't you doing it. Mm. So now what they would do is on the form page, there's a hidden cookie in the page and you have to submit that along with the um, the rest of the request. And that means that you actually successfully talked to the router and got the cookie before you submitted the request. Now, uh, some of these probably could be it made advanced enough to work around that by actually going to the page, getting the key, and then submitting it anyway. You know, I've, I've had to work around uh, cross-site request forgery protection stuff to build. Uh, so if you wanted to print a shipping label from Canada Post uh, to ship some stuff, it was like a four-page form. It's like you go through this page, and then depending on if it was a you know inside Canada to the U.S. or international, the next page was different. Hmm. And there's like these four steps, and then you get a PDF file that you can print, and that's the the shipping label. Uh, well, the business I was working with was shipping computer parts all over the world, like you know ten parts a day or more. So I made a system so that they just clicked a couple of buttons, it grabbed the information of where to ship it to out of the billing data, like the database of what people had bought off the order on the website. And filled out the form and got the PDF file. Uh, but, you know, they had cross-site request forgery protection in there. And so I had to, you know, get the form page, steal the cookie out of it, and then submit mm. the result with that <laughs> cookie and that stuff. <laughs> but, yes, this really brings up the, the point of, you know, many users install ad blockers not to block the ads from your site because, you know, they, we don't expect to get the Internet for free. But... Because of malvertising, we can't trust the ad networks. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this happens on every ad network, even Google. So. Yep, we've talked about it. And it's, it feels like it, it's, it's probably not taken as a serious enough issue. And I think, it's, I think you bring up a good point when you mention that there is other purposes for ad blocking. And I wonder if, I wonder if there's a happy medium in there. Like if ad blocking... I know they got to figure something out because I don't like what's I don't I don't like how uh, like AdBlock Plus is doing it now with whitelist and whatnot, but I have I have just as a matter of practice now I've put ad blocking on all of my browsers, so and and part of it is because I just never know what's coming in from the advertising website. Do you run an ad blocker? Um, on the browser I do for the show mm-hmm. because it was getting annoying, but uh, not on one of my browsers just because I just never got around to. Yeah, I mean. You know, my eyes tune out the ads, and it's yeah, fine. I do yeah, that too. And know, part of me also is probably worth it. Yeah, that's the thing. But for, for part of me also wants to see the website as they intended me to see it because I think there's, I think that's a valuable thing to know too. Uh, well, interesting story, Alan, and sort of, sort of, uh, I guess looking back at 300 episodes, it's an interesting trend that we've seen the focus go from Windows and desktop applications when this show started, Acrobat and Flash and Office were such vectors for attacks, were the common vectors for attacks, and now we're starting to see a transition just like we're seeing in the marketplace where Windows is becoming, it's not gone, it's still a target, but it's just like it's becoming slightly less relevant in the market as a whole, it's becoming less relevant in the malware market and Android and going after your router and getting you at the network level so you get all of your devices regardless of their OS, regardless of their patch level, 
that's brilliant, and it's obvious that's the direction they're going to go as Internet Explorer and Windows 7 and XP fade away. So this is uh, kind of a trend we've been watching for 300 episodes sort of develop. And now here we are, and uh, that story kind of brings it all together. Very nice, sir. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. All right. Well, then let's mention IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap to land on there. That's the page that counts that you heard about it here. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. IX Systems builds incredible computers for your workload powered by those amazing Intel processors. And I say, like, consider it even for a small business, like just a few people. We only have <clears> – <throat> Day to day, really only the beard and I most days here in the studio. And even for a two-person shop, and sometimes we have more, uh, I decided the FreeNAS Mini would be really the sweet spot. And I would encourage you if you are in a small business and you have a handful of people in there, you want a nice, reliable file server, you can set it, you know, you set it up, it's going to be secure, it's going to get updates, consider the FreeNAS. But I think you need to think big when you think of IX because it's not just about the FreeNAS or uh, anything like that. They can build you a custom rig for any major compute system or solution you need. They have clients like Disney, they have clients like uh, the uh, Air Force, they have clients like uh, Splunk, they have Tumblr, they have clients like Hitachi, LinkedIn. I mean, they can build you something. They have NASA as one of their clients, Sony. So I think they could, they could handle it. But I love that they are able to span that whole range and you're worth their time. If you're just a few people at a company or if you're NASA, they'll make it. Uh, they'll make you something really great. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there and check them out. Now, Alan, you pointed me towards something pretty cool over on the IX site, right? It's on IX's website. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Tell me about this. Yeah, so this is uh, uh, VMware vSphere 5 now has this distributed uh, storage clustering thing. Mm. Uh, and so one of the things that allows you to do is keep adding storage to your existing thing and to be able to upgrade your storage. So if you have an existing VMware vSphere type setup and, you know, you bought an expensive NetApp or EMC or something and it's been running for a while and it's full of your VMs, but it's getting old and you want to replace it with, say, a much bigger TrueNAS or you, it just means you can add a TrueNAS on it uh, to this your uh, data store cluster and stuff will start using it, and oh, eventually cool. you can migrate things, and it will. Uh, so VMware can actually load balance across these different things and try to do resource aggregation, initial placement, load balancing, affinity rules, and data store maintenance mode, which actually allows you to say, hey, VMware, I want to take this device offline, right? This old EMC that all the hard drives are dying or whatever. Oh, yeah. You can say, hey, I want to take this offline, and it'll start migrating the VMs to other storage without interrupting the VMs while they're running. That is so slick. That is... Yeah. yeah. So it's like, we're running out of VM storage. We could just add new stuff, but then we'd have to manually decide which VMs stay on the old storage and which ones move to the new one and so on. Whereas with this, uh, you know, data store cluster setup, you can have VMware try to decide and they like actually get the most performance out of each of your different ones. And then it also makes it... Gives you a good path going forward to replace your expensive storage with something like a TrueNAS... Uh, or just getting a TrueNAS into the mix uh, so that you don't have to... It's not a, we have to replace all the existing stuff right now. It's we can add the new stuff and slowly phase out the old that stuff is, as it's, the size of it doesn't make sense anymore. That makes it that makes it so much easier and so much more doable. Check out the VMware-ready certified TrueNAS products from iX Systems at ixsystems.com slash techsnap and all of the really great systems built around those Intel processors... From the free NAS Mini all the way up to the general purpose servers, true NASes, and even the true rack, which maybe one day I aspire to the true rack. 
I really do. It's such a piece of cool kit. I guess you'd, uh, yeah, you'd have to <laughs> need a true rack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah, basically that gives you uh, a, dual, a double-headed true NAS for storage uh, with as many disk shelves as you need, and then a bunch of uh, high-density nodes to do basically run your own cloud. Uh, but it can be customized in any way to do whatever you need it to do. But if you want, uh, you know, if you want an on-premise cloud solution, uh, that can do it. And it's specifically hypervisor agnostic. You can use VMware, you can use Beehive, you can use Zen or KVM or whatever one floats your boat. Man, that's great. Uh, it's one set of hardware that allows you to do whatever. You know, you can do OpenStack or you could do Solus or whatever you want to do. <laughs> That's awesome. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Thank you to ixsystems for sponsoring the TechSnap program, and thanks to you guys for visiting that URL. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Avalanche Crime Ring. I don't, even, uh, I don't even know about this other than it sounds like it's an epic tale. Well, we, have, we, we talked about Avalanche last week, right? I mean the. Uh, I mean this particular. I mean this particular yes. story. I haven't read this. Book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the accused leader of the the cyber fraud gang called Avalanche uh, that allegedly rented out access to their uh, criminal cloud hosting service uh, yeah. is now a fugitive from justice following a bizarre series of events in which he shot at Ukrainian police, no. was arrested on cybercrime charges, and then released from custody. <laughs> so, so this is is this th- since we covered it, or is this? Yes. This is yeah. Wow. So on November 30th, uh, authorities across Europe coordinated to arrest five individuals uh, throughout that, that are thought to be tied to the avalanche crime ring uh, in an operation that the FBI and its partners abroad described as an unprecedented law enforcement response to cybercrime. Mm. Uh, according to Ukrainian news outlets, the alleged leader of the gang, 33-year-old Russian Gennady Kapkanov, uh, did not want to go quietly. Sure. Uh, Kavkanov uh, allegedly shot at officers with his Kalashnikov assault rifle through the door <laughs> uh, of his house as they prepared to raid his house uh, and then attempted to escape uh, off his fourth floor apartment balcony. Wow. That's geez. Uh, but they had him surrounded. Uh, so the Ukrainian police arrested uh, Kavkanov and booked him on cybercrime charges. Uh, but after a little bit, uh, a judge in the city of uh, Poltava. Uh, Ukraine later ordered uh, Kafkanov released, saying that the prosecution had failed to file the proper charges, like charges for shooting at the police officers, uh, that could have allowed authorities to hold him for much longer. Uh, Ukrainian media reports that police have since lost track of Kafkanov. Wow. So it seems uh, the cybercrime charges are uh, the type of charges where, you know, you get arrested, you get a card, and then you know, you get released and then you have a trial, right? They're kind of like civil type, not, not quite like a civil trial, but, you know, that kind of, uh, uh, of offense. Whereas shooting at the police is the kind of thing where you stay in jail until the trial. Right? Sure. They, you know how they have... That know, makes sense. It, it, depending on a bunch of factors, the court decides whether you get to be free until your trial or not. But because they only charge them with the cyber crimes and not with the cri- more serious things like shooting at the police... Uh, they had to let him go because they, you know, they didn't have uh, a reason to hold him, I guess, uh, until his trial. Uh, so now Ukraine's uh, prosecutor general is now calling for the ouster of the prosecutor who fumbled this and let him get away. Wow. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian authorities are now asking for the public's help in trying to rearrest Kapkanov. <laughs> no. Gee, this is a disaster. Yeah, because so once you picture there is him uh, on his balcony, uh, 
as he was trying to get away. But as you can see, the, the police had him surrounded. This is really something. I mean, once you once you go out like this, you're essentially never going to get him. He's never going to. Yeah. Maybe they will. I guess they might. But uh, and then they have a driver's license where uh, he appears to have a <laughs> British address. Uh, so he's in the Ukraine, but he has a British address. huh? Uh, well, he's yeah, he's originally Russian, but he's got a, a British driver's license. Interesting. And so on. MI6. <laughs> yep. Uh, so then, um, since that story was kind of short, I built a little uh, Krebs mini roundup. Oh, really? I like it. Because uh, there was a bunch of other Krebs stories, and the first one was a little too short. Okay. Uh, so the second one here is Operation Tar Pit. Uh, so, Tar Pit, huh? Um, yes. Federal investigators in the United States and Europe last week arrested nearly three dozen people suspected of patronizing so-called booter services <laughs> uh, that can be hired to knock websites offline. The global crackdown is part of an effort by authorities to weaken demand for these services by impressing upon customers that hiring someone to launch cyber attacks on your behalf can land you in jail. Hmm. As part of uh, the coordinated law enforcement effort dubbed Operation Tar Pit, investigators here and abroad also executed more than 100 so-called knock-and-talk interviews with booter buyers who were quizzed about their involvement but not formally charged with crimes. The idea that, you know, if the police show up at, uh, you know, the 15-year-old's house and have a little chat with him, hmm. uh, between that and his parents, hopefully he will stop trying scared to out of it. pay for dollar service attacks and so on. According to Europol, the European Law Enforcement Agency, the uh, operation involves arrests and interviews of suspects uh, uh, who are suspected DDoS for higher service customers in Australia, Belgium, France, Hungary, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Romania, Spain, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Europol said investigators were also uh, were only warning one-time users, but aggressively pursuing repeat offenders who frequented the booter services. In particular, these arrests stemmed, at least in part, from the uh, successes that investigators had in infiltrating a booter service called NetSpoof. According to the uh, UK's National Crime Agency, NetSpoof offered subscription packages starting at four pounds, which is about five dollars, up to about five hundred US dollars a month, uh, with some customers paying as much as uh, ten thousand dollars to launch hundreds of attacks. Uh, they said twelve people were arrested in connection with the NetSpoof investigation, and the victims included uh, gaming providers, government departments, internet hosting companies, schools, and colleges. Uh, mostly things that were targeted by these teenagers. Um, so basically the police raided and took over NetSpoof and then uh, kind of sat there and see who, el- who else is going to pay mm-hmm. it. Who's, who's going to come in after this and pay <laughs> us to attack people and basically used it as a sting. Pretty clever. Uh, Krebs has a, quite a long write-up about this one, including uh, some conclusions, but his... Last little bits, uh, I think, are the important bit. He says, he says, I applaud last week's actions here in the United States and abroad, as I believe many booter service customers patronize them out of some rationalization that doing so isn't a serious crime. Uh, the typical booter service customer is a teenage male who is into online gaming and is seeking a way to knock a rival team or server offline, sometimes to settle a score or even just to win a game. For example, one of the co-proprietors of VDOS, the one that attacked Krebs, uh, mm. A couple of months ago, Mm -hmm. for example, was famous for DDoSing the game server offline if his team was about to lose, thereby preserving the team's frequency high win ratio. Uh, But but this is a stereotype that glosses over a serious, costly, and metastasizing problem that needs urgent attention. 
More critically, early law enforcement intervention for youths involved in launching or patronizing these services may be key to turning otherwise bright kids away from the dark side and towards more constructive uses of their time and talents before they wind up in jail. I'm afraid of having some kind of uh, you know, road to Damascus movement or moment or law enforcement investigation, uh, a great many individuals who initially only pay for such attacks end up uh, getting sucked into you know, alluring criminal vortex of digital extortion easy money and online hooliganism, you know, well, it seems harmless to, to pay $5 to, to knock, you know, some kids, some YouTube streamers, uh, um, live stream down or something. server off, oh. offline. So that, mm-hmm. you know, you get a little 12 year old kid to cry or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're launching denial of service attacks against Krebs that are silencing free speech or, you know, are costing activity a hundred thousand dollars, then suddenly it's not just uh, kids pulling, being hooligans. There, there is a cost to undermining the public's trust in these infrastructure services. You know, when something continues to fail for you from time to time, you just, you know, you just kind of forget about it. You stop using it. Uh, it's the Siri effect. These, these denial of service attacks are definitely causing real economic harm. Uh, and if we can, you know, uh, make it the domain only of serious stuff so that we can... Uh, Go after we can spend resources going after those people, not have to worry about trying to separate the wheat from the chaff of these little attacks yeah. and so on. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, denial of service attacks are not fun and games. Stop it. Yeah, now we have some Yahoo news, don't we? Yes, uh, so I didn't really dig into the whole you know, one billion Yahoo accounts. It's hack. just so ridiculous at this point, it's just getting well. It- I think at this point, it's just like literally every account. And again, this is the 2013 one. So I think it's just more information on the previous oh, one. I, I don't the know. report I heard on the radio this morning said it was separate from the earlier attack. Maybe but it I don't is know separate, if... but it's also old. Yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's just like, you know, when the door was open, more than one person came in. Mm-hmm. Who would have guessed? Uh, but Krebs has uh, initially. So he's got the whole story on that. Uh, story of the, the the new information about the hack. Um, but he has a second one called My Yahoo Account Was Hacked, Now What? This one has some good information in it. Oh, okay. Uh, first interesting one is, uh, is mostly in the form of question and answer, and it's, uh, I'm not sure if I have a Yahoo account. How do I find out? It's like, this is a surprisingly complex question. Thanks to the myriad mergers and business relationships that Yahoo has forged over the years, you may have a Yahoo account and not realize it. That's because many accounts that are managed through Yahoo don't end up in Yahoo.com or even Yahoo.ca or .de or whatever. For example, British Telecom uh, uses Yahoo for their customer emails. Uh, So do or did uh, SBC Global, AT&T, and Bell South. Also, Verizon email addresses that were serviced uh, were serviced by Yahoo until they got bought or until they acquired AOL uh, a couple years ago, or even up in Canada. Rogers.net customers may also have Yahoo addresses from before. Uh, he says, I'm sure there are plenty of others that I'm missing, but you get the point. Your Yahoo account may not actually have the word Yahoo in it. Just like a lot of uh, colleges and so on are now going to using Gmail uh, to provide email for students. Uh, it was a huge thing back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. Your ISP yeah. most likely used yeah. Yahoo or MSN. Yeah. I know for uh, me... I uh, I ended up with a Yahoo account. I never even wanted one, but I ended up with I ended up with one when I had a Flickr account, and Yahoo bought Flickr. And so then once I had a Flickr account, I think I, I think I signed up for like Yahoo Groups or something too, just to try that out. Like you know, so eventually I ended up with a Yahoo account that I didn't even want, for, thanks yeah, to Flickr. I, I imagine 
Anybody who's been on the internet for like 10 years probably has at least two Yahoo accounts. Just got them laying around, Alan. I don't know if they're active now, anymore. It does help that <laughs> Yahoo uh, eventually got a policy of like trying to delete accounts that hadn't been used in three plus years to um, mostly for them it was to free up usernames, but uh, it also means that, you know, if they had actually scrubbed the data properly, it means that maybe back in 2013, your account has already been deleted and wasn't compromised, but hard to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they have the question is, uh, so if using a hashing method like MD5 is such a lame security idea, why is Yahoo still doing it? Well, you know, in this case, Yahoo says this breach dates back to 2013. Uh, to his credit, Yahoo began moving away from MD5 to Bcrypt in uh, some point in 2013, uh, or at least for new accounts. But yes, even in 2013, anyone with half a clue in securing passwords already knew that MD5 was terrible. You know, we've been saying it on this show since we started in 2010. And, (laughs) you know, MD5 was terrible long before that. Yes, yes. This is... um, Anyone knew that using MD5 format was no longer acceptable and an altogether brain-dead idea. It's one of the many reasons why I've encouraged my uh, friends and family to ditch Yahoo email for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, uh, the, one of the big points about the modular crypt that's used by default on you know Unix-like operating systems, where it's like $1 or $6, uh, is that they allow upgrading. So all you have to, all Yahoo had to do was when a user logs in, they enter their actual password and you hash it with the MD5 and you see that it matches. And when it does, you just re-encrypt the password, rehash the password with Blowfish, right? So for the Bcrypt thing, you don't even need the user to change their password. All they have to do is log in with the password and temporarily while you have the plain text password, you can replace the encrypted or the hash with a newer hash. You know, we went through this whole thing, actually, um, the IRC services that we use, we switched from MD5 to like SHA-256 in like 2007 or something. Mm. And it was just, as users identified, it would upgrade in the database their hash from the old version to the new version. Sure. And then all we did is anybody who hasn't logged in in 90 days, their nick expires and was deleted. So after 90 days, uh, it was solved. Now, Yahoo can do three years, but basically at this point, they shouldn't have any MD5 left. And maybe they do, maybe they don't, but... Yeah. yeah. Now, it gets slightly more complicated when you have mobile phones and so on that say authenticate with some kind of token that isn't their password. Well, and who knows uh, what their security st- state was in 2013 versus 2016. Yeah. Uh, so they uh, may have made changes and improvements and deleted thousands of accounts since then. Yes, well, uh, yes, I think uh, they've definitely had more than a billion accounts in total before, but it seems that's about what they have now. Wow. Uh, maybe in a future episode, we can actually dig into... Uh, other news that came out this week was that separately the uh, the back door that the NSA had uh, them install yeah. uh, for stuff uh, turns out was in the form of a Linux kernel module that probably violated the GPL. Love it, really? Oh, that's a good story. Uh, yeah, we might have more information on that. Uh, but the big story there was just how Yahoo management specifically went around their security team because they knew the security team wouldn't have accepted it. Interesting. Yeah, that is a, you know, when you know that your employees internally won't be willing to implement the thing that you need them to do, that is a, that's got to be a really uncomfortable situation. It should really be a red flag that what you're doing is wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Um, depends on their definition of wrong, I guess. uh, So then we have this, well, yeah, in Yahoo's case, they didn't really have a choice. The the government was charging them like $150,000 a day until they did it. And you could wind up like the Qualcomm CEO who refused and wound up in jail. So, yeah. 
Um, so then we have the biggest one that Krebs makes the point of here, though. Yahoo said that in some cases, encrypted or unencrypted security questions and answers may have been stolen. Why is this a big deal? Mm-hmm. So that's something that a lot of people didn't think about it at first was encrypting the secret questions and answers. Because uh, in general, you think of those as, you know, not that big of a deal. But the problem is those are actually more important than the password because I can't change the answers to what my What high secret school questions. did you go to? Yeah, I can't suddenly have gone to a different high school. And a lot of sites uh, ask the same questions. Yes. And and this, uh, well, part of that is, you know, we've talked before about what make good security questions because, you know, what's your favorite food doesn't work because that can change. And then, you know, years later, you're trying to remember back, uh, you know, what was my favorite food five years ago? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. <laughs> and I think on that episode, I told the embarrassing story where there's one site where I put a snarky answer in. Yeah. Yeah. You, I, you know. Yeah. Uh, a teenager at the time. I sometimes put fake answers in and then note them down in LastPass, but that's precarious yeah. when you're in a rush. Yeah. Uh, so um, so uh, Krebs says here, because uh, for years security questions uh, were served as convenient backdoors used by criminals to defraud regular nice people whose only real crime is that they tend to answer questions honestly, uh, but with the proliferation of data that many people post online themselves on social media sites combined with the volume of public records that can be indexed by various paid and free services, it's never been easier for a stranger to answer your secret questions. What was the name of your elementary school? Don't feel badly if you naively answer your question, your secret question honestly. Um, you know, most people do, but the problem is then that's something most people can find on Facebook or, you know, even in the recent case, uh, even criminals have their accounts hacked by easily guessed secret questions. If you remember the story was it one or two weeks ago, the guy that, uh, the ransomware guy that took over the, uh, train system in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, had his account. Remember the, uh, a security researcher hacked his accounts by guessing the answers to his secret questions. Mm hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, really your best answer is to put in random gobbledygook that you remember with your password manager. Mm-hmm. If you can. If or, you, can. you know, uh, the SHA-256 of the real answer. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's uh, a good trick. Which only, that, that only helps somewhat. It means that someone that looks at the, if, if someone gets access to the answers, they don't know what your actual answer is. Yeah. But. You know, if they figure out that's what you're doing, it's very easy for them to figure yeah. out what your high school was. And then yeah, yeah. Job and they might be able to do that if they've gotten that far. So, yeah. So completely, basically have LastPass or whatever generate mm-hmm. extra passwords and have a different password as the answer for each one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, what's your mother's maiden name? Honestly, <laughs> doing that too. Capital G. Doing that too makes it easier for documentation and noting and handing off down for the road if you needed to for some reason. It's. Yep. It's, it's well, yeah, if, if every site has a different answer to the same secret question, then you don't ex- expose your other accounts if you have to give one of them away and so on. Some good stuff. Boy, that Yahoo thing is, is a mess. Yep. Uh, any other thoughts on that one? Any other notes? Uh, nope, none on that one. All right, check out Alan's uh, nice show notes uh, <laughs> over on the JV site. Let's mention DigitalOcean, uh, another sponsor, right here on the TechSnap program. And use our promo code SNAPOcean when you create an account. That will give you a $10 credit to play around at DigitalOcean. They've got really great pricing. You can spin up a rig in less than 55 seconds. All SSDs. They have a fantastic interface to manage it. Lightning-fast networking. Team counts, which are super nice for working together. And highly available block storage. But look at the pricing. You can go uh, monthly or hourly. I like to show the hourly because if I'm experimenting with a project, I tend to go at $0.03 cents an hour. If I'm going to run something that is 
more test phase, I tend to float in the 5 to 10 because it's not a big deal to upgrade them later on either. And then for my son's Minecraft server, it's $20 a month. That gives me 2 gigs of RAM, a 2-core processor, a 40-gigabyte SSD, and 3 terabytes of transfer. That same rig is $0.03 cents an hour if you just want to try out an open-source project. You want to develop something locally, and then you want to deploy it globally. DigitalOcean is perfect for that. they got data centers in San Francisco, New York, Toronto, London, Amsterdam, Germany, Singapore, India. And now they have a great tutorial they posted just a, about a week ago on their uh, community section on setting up real-time performance monitoring with NetData on Ubuntu 16.04 LTS. NetData is pretty cool. And if you want graphs and charts to show the boss or whoever what's going on, <clears throat> NetData is a really good one. You can give somebody the URL. They get a quick snapshot. It's it's all the eye candy you want with actual useful information, too. So I, I've mentioned it once before on the show, and I want to give it another plug because it's such a cool tool. And this is such a great guide to get set up. And also, uh, one of the other things that I know folks use DigitalOcean for is when they're developing things like, oh, I don't know, an app, and it needs some sort of server-side component, they don't want to set up a whole back-end infrastructure, it's really easy to host your services on DigitalOcean, get it set up, super nice resource management, the flexible API, and then the snapshots will save your bacon if you make a mistake mm-hmm. and you got people using your service. DigitalOcean.com. Well, well, the snapshots also be like, oh, I need a second one of these snapshots. Yes. Clone. Absolutely. Done. Absolutely. So there's so many nice things you can do. I I needed to do that 36 times the other day. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, for the big event, uh, video streaming event we did last weekend, we needed a couple more servers. Uh, So we created uh, 36 of the DigitalOcean droplets that are like 11 cents each. Wow. Because they get like 8 gigs of RAM that way and 5 terabytes of bandwidth and so on. Uh, So, yeah, we just... Created a, a golden image, like got a, a, a scale engine server set up perfectly as a droplet, then snapshotted it, and then made 36 of them. Mm. Ran them for the weekend, and then deleted them. And so we only paid for the time they were on over the weekend. That is that is so cool. That yeah, is such a great Basically, use. for the, the price it would have cost for, uh, it's a little bit, because it was 36 machines, it's, that's a day and a half of... Uh, or like a month that happened, but anyway, each hour we kept them on was only about the price of a month of the server, and so keeping them on for like eight hours in one day meant that it was a lot cheaper than paying the monthly price for the whole month for all of those servers. Yeah, that is such a great useful. And now, or how are you spinning up? With are you using like the API to like you must be at that many, right? Or are you actually uh, yes? But when we were testing, we were just doing it in the in the web interface. Yeah, and it's got this great thing for the naming. It actually figured out our naming convention and auto-numbered them for us. <laughs> so we put in the host name of our first server and said six, and then it actually figured it out. Whereas one of the other providers we were using, it just added a one or two or three to the end of the existing host name. It's like, well, blah, 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 dot, net three doesn't work mm-hmm. <laughs> as the host name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. That's really cool, Alan. DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code SNAPOcean, get a $10 credit, try out something pretty cool. And uh, thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. SnapOcean is one word. You just apply it to your account after you sign up, DigitalOcean.com. And uh, thanks to everybody who uses SnapOcean. So this one could be a huge time black hole for a lot of folks watching, but this looks like a badass list, Alan. Yes. uh, So there was a conference uh, earlier this week, I think, called Systems We Love. Uh, It's uh, hosted by Brian Cantrell, and it was about... Uh, just sysadmins and developers coming together to spend one day with a, basically a quick series of lightning talks about some system that they really love. 
Uh, and so they kind of talk about it and explain what's so cool about it. And so they have a whole bunch of different ones. Uh, but I, I got to watch one of them so far today, and it was amazing. <laughs> hmm. Uh, so the first one, is, it was actually the second talk uh, at the conference, uh, but it was called Life of an Airline Flight. What systems get you from here to there via the air? Oh. Uh, so this talk is a very enjoyable overview of the scheduling, inventory management, reservation, and other systems that coordinate behind the scenes to enable us to fly commercially. It is particularly interesting to see that systems like Sabre were so ahead of their time when they were designed in the early or late 50s, early 60s, uh, enough so that uh, they've been able to avoid much uh, innovation in the last five or so decades. Avoid? You know, so, a lot of, so while we complain that a lot of the airline reservation system hasn't changed that much in 50 years, uh, the interesting thing is they got it right the first time. Mm. You know, the fact that it still actually works is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the bits in there are pretty gnarly. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to watch the talk about it. Uh, and he talks about a lot of the great stuff like what it – how it used to be when you actually wanted to, you know, book a flight from here to there and how they actually figured out what flights to take, but then how it works now and so on. And there was one just great tidbit. I like this one just had me rolling on the floor. So, you know, the little six letter number uh, reservation code you get for a flight, mm-hmm. right? Your little booking code. That's yeah. like six character. Uh, originally, uh, that was a block pointer to the actual place on disk no. where your reservation was stored on the mainframe. When there was just the one mainframe, it was literally the block address of your reservation on the disk. Unbelievable. They literally just handed you a pointer. <laughs> that's hardcore. It <laughs> is hardcore. You know, it's different now, but that's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> The talk goes on to talk about a bunch of other things, like how the data moves around, how many different people have access to your credit card number, uh, you know, which information gets sent to the Department of Homeland Security and by who. And it's basically all of it by everybody multiple times. Um, and some of the protocols it goes over and stuff, it's uh, quite amazing. Uh, this blog post that documents it all is quite helpful because they did it uh, like as a YouTube live stream or whatever. So it's just one giant nine hour video. Oh, and they've time-linked with these links? Is that what they're yeah, doing? Yeah, so these oh, links yes. uh, have the title, the speaker, and a short description with the time-link for each one. So you can jump to uh, the ones that are interesting to you if you that say, is don't so have helpful. nine hours to watch the whole thing at once. Wow, and we have the link. It's on a blog, so we have the link in the show notes so you guys can check this out. Yes, uh, but there are lots of other interesting ones. Um, Ryan Zizeski, uh, who, if you watched this week's BSD Now, he's the one that uh, did the story about... Uh, why why is my Illumo server so slow? Also, it's doing the same thing to my Mac laptop. What the hell's going on? Oh, I left a thing on top of my printer and it was pressing the touchscreen and causing, you know, thousands of packets a second of UDP uh, MDNS stuff to happen. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he told a great story about that. Um, and we're hoping to get him on for an interview on BSD now Ooh, soon. Cool. But his talk was about uh, the original slash proc on Sun. Hmm. Uh, which was uh, created by Roger Faulkner, I think. I forget his last name. Uh, but he talks about Slash Proc and how that worked. Uh, then uh, Brianne Boland uh, did 40 years about man pages, uh, you know, digging back into the history of how those originally came about and how they've changed over the 40 years. Um, then uh, the next one's about persistent virtual memory in the great new operating system in the cloud. 
uh, which goes back to the original mainframe concepts and how those are being reinvented as we create virtualization in the cloud and so on. Very cool. Um, the one by Marianne uh, Belotti was apparently not recorded or yeah, something? Yeah, not linked or? either, yeah. So, um, so they have a intermission in there where they had a, a screen up saying, you know, we're on our break and we'll be back at this time. And it seems they might have forgot to take that down and missed one of the talks. Mm. I'm not entirely sure what happened there. I kind of wish I could have uh, gone to San Francisco to be there at this event. Yeah. Uh, but it was difficult on my schedule to try to fly to San Francisco for one day, uh, which would have been you know, expensive and, and time-consuming, especially so close to the holidays. I, you know, My weeks, for the next couple of weeks, are already booked solid. Like every second day, I have to be somewhere. Anyway, uh, and then uh, Brian Fink has one uh, less ado about NTP. So if you've ever wanted to know just a bit more about NTP, this really digs into the history of it and how it came about and how it works and why it's so amazing, uh, <laughs> even though it's terrible. Why? <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yep. Uh, and then uh, Weenix, uh, the system that inspired generations of system lovers. Uh, so if you're interested in that, that was cool. Uh, and then uh, Brian Troutwine uh, does the charming genius of the Apollo guidance computer. You know, if you've ever kind of, you know, wanted to marvel at it, busy, you probably never even looked about it or thought, but you heard, you know, the Apollo guidance computer had less computer power than is in your watch or yeah, in your, in your you car know, or et cetera, know, et cetera. In one tenth of what's in your phone or whatever. So how did they do it? So this talk del- delves into how the Apollo guidance computer actually worked and why it's so interesting. That is fascinating. Uh, then Richard Keene talks about BGP. You know, the border gateway protocol, the routing protocol that makes up the entire Internet. Turns out it was mostly made up as it was needed and it's barely held together with, you know, duct tape and (laughs) and gum and so on. Of course. Uh, You know, and then uh, Irfan Ahmed talks about interrupts, (laughs) that which scared Dykstra. It's like what uh, how interrupts actually work in your computer. And, you know, we mostly think of them as those damn things that eat up all my CPU when I'm using my network card and so on. But uh, actually understanding how they work and, and where they came that from. That sounds is quite fascinating. That's some good <laughs> basics right there. Yeah. Uh, or lessons from the cell. What software developers can learn from biochemical systems. You know, just the uh, systems we love is any system. It didn't have to be about computers, but they're just relating biochemical systems back to programming and so on. Uh, Jesse Hathaway gave a talk, uh, the design of the Unix terminal. How that actually came about. Quite interesting. Uh, And then Brian Cantrell gave his talk, which was Down Memory Lane, Two Decades of the Slab Allocator. So it talks about uh, Jeff Bonwick, who went on to create ZFS. But before that, he created the Slab Allocator, which was how the Solaris kernel actually allocates memory. And uh, basically how that was an innovation over how it was done before uh, and how it actually resulted in a lot more performance. Well, this is the uh, event he was talking about at Meet BSD. I remember him saying he was going to go to this now. Or somebody uh, saying he, that he was going to be at this. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah. Arun Thomas. Yeah. Uh, his talk is coming up. We'll get to that in a minute. Interesting. Um, but yeah, um, so he talks about that and how that was such an innovation. But, you know, he did, goes back uh, to when he was very young and, you know, got this book at a bookstore because, you know, Amazon didn't exist 20 years ago. Yep. Uh, he's even got a picture of him when he's like 21, so it's quite amusing. Uh, and anyway, that one was cool. Uh, one of the things I liked is uh, one of the slides he pulls up 
uh, like a, just a picture from his copy of the book where he's actually written in the book a little bit and talks about how he doesn't like to do it. But anyway, uh, talking about the sob allocator and then it talks about the Mucusic Carols allocator. Hmm? I'm like, I recognize those two names. I've had dinner with some of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. And so, uh, so yeah, that was really interesting for me. Uh, and then Alex Wilson did DNS and the art of making systems just complex enough. Hmm. Uh, I look forward to seeing that one. I haven't had the time to watch that one yet, but that's definitely on my to watch list. Uh, I love DNS. And then uh, Arun Thomas, uh, who uh, works on FreeBSD, gave his talk. Uh, You're not expected to understand this, but you will. <laughs> okay. Uh, his is talking. About now, I forget what it was about. <laughs> uh, context switching in Unix, V6, yes. and FreeBSD. Yes, so that's uh, switching between the kernel and user land. Uh, it's quite complicated, but uh, he explains it very well, and uh, it's interesting. You know, uh, watching one of Kirk McCusick's old The History of BSD DVDs uh, and learning about you know where the context switching code in in uh, the original BSD came from, hmm. which was off the back of a truck, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so on. So I bet that one will be good too. Uh, and then there's uh, an awk love story. You know, if you've ever used awk for something, you probably didn't realize exactly how deep awk really goes. But you go you down know. the deep awk rabbit hole, huh? In this one, <laughs> yep, there's a great one. Uh, and then Daniel Morsing talks about UTF-8. You know. I'm not sure anybody would ever thought that would be very uh, exceptionally elegant, but, uh, you know, it's kind of important nowadays. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the last one from uh, Amelia Abaru was card-based systems on the complex tactile and material quality of cards in computing. Hmm. What kind of cards? Like, do you know? Like, is she she talking like PC cards or is she... Card-based uh, systems uh, on the complex uh, tactile material qualities of cards and could be, or is she talking like hypercard? Uh, type of. Um, I'm a design researcher and UX designer, and I work primarily with engineering and security teams. And I have a lot of conversations about systems, and I often feel like I have to push the present over the future, like. Yeah, I know the next release is going to be awesome in this different way, but... I think it's UI design, because she's a UI yeah. designer. So that's interesting. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, or there, nope, there's a PC card. I guessed wrong. I guessed wrong. <laughs> it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's a grab bag, Alan. It's a grab but bag. You should definitely check it out. Uh, yeah, that's a great a list. Talks. It's just, uh, you know, it sounds like it was an amazing event. Uh, just the, the airline one is the only one I really had time to watch so far, and it was great. I recommend it. Well, that's super nice that that blog, I had the gentleman that writes that blog went through and, and linked him up. I was going to try to say his yeah, name, so but I would just he, butcher it, I think. Yeah. So he was actually at the event and was able to summarize his thoughts on all of these. That's why he was basically a day ahead of the rest of us is because he saw them all live. And then when they went up online, yeah. he time-coded them all for you Smart. and includes his description so you can easily pick which one you want to watch first. Link is in the But you could just notes. start at the beginning and watch the entire, like, nine hours. Yeah. Also, if it's your active if it's your active window, arrow key is your friend. You can you can you can fast forward by five seconds, and I think it even has speed up. You can play it. You can play faster in the YouTube player too, can't you? You can listen that fast, yeah. So that might be yeah. That's the only thing. Yeah. So I imagine I will watch these uh, over the next month or so. Yeah, uh, maybe with Christmas I'll have maybe a little bit more free time or a little bit less. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I might I might uh, 
maybe download the audio from this whole thing on my phone or something to listen to. And I know I have to, I have a number of uh, long car rides ahead going back. That's and forth a great idea for Christmas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, absorb some of this knowledge for you to you YouTube red users. You can save it offline on your phone. Uh, which is kind of cool too. It wouldn't you save it when you're on Wi-Fi. While we're uh, I don't know how much storage it'll take on your phone. This is a long video. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Uh, while we're talking about phones, let's talk about Ting. TechSnap.Ting.com is where you go to support the show and get a $25 service credit if you bring a phone and $25 off a phone if you need a new one. Ting sells new unlocked phones. I think they probably have some refurbed ones too, or you can just bring your own. They have a BYOD page where you can uh, do the math. You know what I mean. They also have great customer service where you get to talk to an actual human being. I love the fact that they have a CDMA and GSM network. When I travel around, that makes a huge difference. In fact, I want to mention this because this doesn't always happen. As Ting has the uh, Novatel My5 500 back in stock for $59. Now, this is super slick because what I have done when I'm on the road is I've used this on the CDMA network. And then I've just – if I'm in a pinch, I can just use hotspot or tethering on an Android device or I actually have a GSM MiFi on Ting too. It's, it's like one of the Netgear ones. Uh, Ting has all kinds of devices from SIM cards at $9, flip phones at $20, bucks, uh, Android devices that are actually decent at $55, bucks, all the way up to the Cadillac. You know, I'm talking the Pixel, the Internet phones, the Galaxies, the Motos, all that stuff. You start by going to techstap.ting.com. And even if you're not necessarily ready to jump on the Ting bandwagon, uh, check out the Ting blog. Talk about whoever they got writing this. Uh, Luke over there. Luke must be a legit cord cutter because these are some amazing posts. And uh, he just wrote one up. The avoid the trap of trying to make cord cutting look like cable TV. This guy has felt my pain before. Based on the devices he's reviewing, the services he's looking at, and the way he writes, he's felt my pain before. So start by going to techsnap.ting.com. That'll support the show and give you $25 in either service credit, which will probably last you more than your first month because the way Ting works is you just pay for what you use, and there's no contract, and there's no termination fee. So it's just pay for what you use wireless, and it's only $6 a month for the line. $6 a month for the line. Isn't that ridiculous? So you start by going to techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I had a drum room come in here just for that one dramatic moment. Uh, before we uh, get into the feedback, let's give a little mention to episode 172 of the BSD Now show, a tale of BSD from your episode yes, So we had a, a great interview uh, on that episode and uh, some other uh, interesting stories. Very nice. Very nice. And it just came out uh, a little bit ago. So if you'd like to go get yourself a fresh episode of the BSD Now program, it's a great way to get a little more Jude in your face. We're about halfway through, so you can start the HD download and have it all ready mm-hmm. to go when we wrap up. So that's episode 172 of the BSD Now program. But we're not done yet. We have lots more. We have feedback and roundup. So let's do the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the JB website. Or maybe you poked around in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first email this week comes in from Dave, and he's picking Alan's brain on an interesting topic. Now, I think he's based on some assumptions here that perhaps Solaris may fade away, but for maybe the sake of this email. Yeah, for the sake of this email, we'll 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 
We'll chew on that. He says, uh, hey, Chris and Alan, so I'm now the proud admin of a new Oracle ZFS storage appliance that I'm just about finished migrating all of our NAS storage to. But with the recent scuttlebutt on the internet of Oracle shutting down Solaris, I'm interested in your thoughts on what may become of ZFS. One, since Alan has stated that Oracle ZFS has broken compatibility with OpenZFS, is there any features I should avoid to keep my options open for migrating to a different ZFS appliance in the future? Uh, if you can, keep it at Zpool version 28, uh, because that one is actually compatible back and forth. Uh, going forward, they were compatible. Um, as long as you didn't use any of the new features uh, added after v28, they were still somewhat compatible. But at some point, they made it so. So in OpenZFS, ZFS Send strips out all the weird features and makes a stream that you can receive onto any version of ZFS, basically. Hmm. Uh, it, it, the idea was that it would recommonize the stream so that your backup machine, say, didn't have to be as upgraded as your new one. Um, but at some point, Oracle changed something in the ZFS send format on their closed version of ZFS, meaning that a send from Oracle ZFS can't be received on the open source ZFS. Uh, so you can move data from open ZFS to ZFS, but not the other way. Um, I don't know about um, when that change was exactly. Um, but yeah, if you can keep the pool at V28, uh, then you will be able to uh, go about it that way. And I think, I'm not sure if it's possible or not, but what you might be able to do is create a new V28 pool on Oracle, ZFS send using Oracle stuff from their newer pool to the v28 pool and then be able to hmm. uh, import that on open zfs and be able to mm -hmm. work from there on it hmm. i'm not sure about that though okay um most people are uh lucky in that they're trying to escape older oracle zfs storage appliances not newer ones <laughs> <laughs> all right ready for part two he yeah. says that since the underlying os of oracle zfs appliance is solaris do you think that once Oracle cancels it, they'll change the license on ZFS to make it compatible with the GPL? That way, they can still sell their appliance by switching the OS to Linux with native ZFS support from the kernel. Thanks for all you guys have done. I'm looking forward to Dan and Wes, but we'll still miss listening to you guys. Dave. So there's a problem there. Uh, Oracle's ZFS has never been ported to Linux. Only the open ZFS has been. What do they use? Does and, Oracle have a Linux? Do they not put their ZFS in their Linux? Nope, they don't. They, that, they, remember, Oracle's Linux is paired with Oracle's ButterFS from before they bought Sun, right? Okay, yeah. Or Oracle started ButterFS to compete with ZFS. Right, right. Uh, I, yeah. And then it ended up just buying the company <laughs> that made ZFS, but ruining ZFS in such a way that ZFS went off without them. <laughs> um, Surprise. So, yeah, so, so the problem is that Oracle doesn't actually uh, – if, if they did relicense the, the – because all, all the copyright of the original ZFS is assigned to them, so they can relicense uh, what's their version of ZFS. But all the porting to Linux is done under the original CDL license, and they can't just take that mm -hmm. uh, with the you – know, they can't just relicense other people's work. People uh, are always hoping for that GPL relicensing. They're just so hoping. Even, even if Oracle relicensed – everything they would still need the zfs and linux people to relicense to the gpl which i'm guessing maybe they would but they would have to get each individual person that contributed anything 
to agree to it, every single person, or they, you know, every bit of code, either the person has to agree or they have to rewrite it without it being the same, basically, hmm. and a bunch of things like that. So I really doubt that they will. Uh, it seems very obvious that Oracle doesn't have much interest in ZFS. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what Oracle has interest in these days. Uh, all yeah. right, Alex. Uh, so I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> I, I wish you could have bought, you know, some more generic hardware and uh, thrown ZFS on it and not be trapped in the Oracle hellhole. But <laughs> it is what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alex writes in, he's got a question about double nice. He says, hey, Chris and Alan, I recently switched from my horrible CenturyLink DSL to an LTE-based ISP. Hey, Alex, I use that. That's what I do, too. He says, my modem was provided by my ISP, and it's behind their network. I don't have a public-facing IP address that I can route traffic to anymore. I have multiple servers I need to be able to access from the outside, RDP, web, uh, gaming traffic, but I have no idea how to get through my double NAT situation. I was thinking of some kind of tunnel through DigitalOcean Droplet, but I don't know what steps I should look into to set this up. I run mostly a Windows-based network, but I do have some Linux machines available. I have plenty of extra servers if I need to run a specific OS. I also have a Docker server if there's any Docker you guys could think I could just use to help. Yeah, so the, because you're on LTE, yeah, you're basically stuck behind a carrier-grade NAT there. So I don't know if those typically have some kind of um, – um, what's that protocol called that punches holes in NAT? UPN – oh. Yeah, uh, UPN. Uh, so I don't know if it has some kind of UPnV where so you might my, be able to So my QNAP, I am able – from my phone right now, I could connect to the QNAP in my RV, which is linked over uh, – See, I'm in a really bad situation because I've got an LTE modem that's on the carrier's network, which is probably natted. Um, although the IP address, it's it's like a different, it's like it's a public IP address, but I think it's shared with a lot of users. So it's essentially NAT, but when you look at it's my... It's carrier grade NAT. Yeah. Okay. So then, of course, that LTE modem is connected to a cradle point uh, router, which then is doing NAT on my internal network. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but still, I am able to connect using the QManager app. Uh, and right, essentially, it's actually the QNAP connects out to something, right. and then you meet so it in the middle. Somewhere. Do you think Alex is on the right track then? With uh, thinking about maybe yep. setting up uh, a so, VPN to DO. Yeah, a DigitalOcean droplet with a VPN would mean that you could then forward uh, specific ports, like you know RDP and the web and the gaming traffic, uh, from the DigitalOcean IP over the NAT to your network. Uh, so yeah, you'd have your house connect out to the DigitalOcean droplet, uh, where it's running OpenVPN or something, and then the firewall. Uh, running on your digital ocean machine would forward specific ports over the VPN back into your house and uh, would solve your problem. Yeah, I think so. And then he and you can do that with a $5 digital ocean droplet and there's yep. plenty of bandwidth and the digital ocean droplets have lots of throughput. Like you can actually yep. do a gigabit back and forth across them. So it's not going to slow you down. And if you're gaming with specific friends, slow by your, if you're your, gaming with specific friends, you could have them connect into the digital ocean droplet too. You guys could be on the yeah. same network and if you want. Mm-hmm. All right. Next question. Gary writes in with a question about uh, flashcards and whatnot. He says, I have a free NAS mini for my ex and the NetGate PFSense router. Uh, that's nice. That's the home one. The free NAS has a uh, compact flash card like mine does. Uh, and the NetGate either has compact or compact flash or SD as the boot drive. How long do you think I should wait before replacing these cards? I don't think it'd be wise to wait around for a failure. A little preemptive replacement might be a good idea, but after how long? I'm thinking when it comes to time, DD the old to the new one, and then uh, look into extending the, uh, extending the file system since the card will probably be larger in most cases. Thanks, and all the best, Gary. So what do you think, Al? Yeah, so with a free NAS, there's nothing critical actually on that card, and the card doesn't get worn out too badly because it's only basically used when the machine boots up. Uh, and then, you know, the OS has run out of RAM after that. Um, 
and so, you know, if the CF card in your FreeNAS goes out, you just, you know, burn a new version of FreeNAS on the new card and boot up and it imports your old pool and your data is there and you're good to go. Uh, so that's awesome. Um, is there any file system stats you could look at or anything that might indicate that? I'm not that familiar with F- CF and SD cards. Okay. Uh, I know a lot of people were doing this with FreeNAS minis with the USB stick hosting the OS. Uh, and then, you know, they're like, oh, my USB stick died. It's like, well, I put FreeNAS on a new USB stick, plugs it in, and hey, my files are still there. This is awesome. Uh, and all of the settings and everything, too. Uh, so, um, I don't know. Okay. As, as often as you feel like doing it. Maybe, you know, I've mine's over two years old. Maybe that's a good point. It's just every two years. Uh, but again, it. it you know, in general, the card's not getting written to a lot, uh, except for maybe configuration changes. And it only really gets read when you boot up. So hopefully the wear and tear on the card is quite low. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, hmm. yeah, you definitely don't need to do it uh, very often. But, uh, you know, if you feel comfortable... If you, if you feel like you – if you would feel – if you sleep better at night if you did it, then Do sure, it. go ahead. Yeah, they're not super expensive. Uh, all right. Like I think on the PF sense, I think there are actually settings on the card. So you might – I'd be more worried about the PF sense than the FreeNAS. Okay. Because, you know, with the FreeNAS, you also have disks and it stores stuff there. Right. That's really where the data rated. is. Yeah. Whereas PF sense, you know, the configs. SD card could be your only storage. Yeah. And so Make sure all your configs are backed backups, up. Backups. Backups yeah. and backups. Yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, Postniver or Postniver writes and asking for IRC tips. He says, even though he's in the IRC right now, I've not looked into IRC much, and I'm finding out that it's awesome, and I would like to learn more. What tips do you have for newcomers to IRC? Thanks. Yeah, uh, so our our IRC network, uh, Geekshed.net, has a bunch of tutorials and little documents up on the website that explain some of the different commands and so on. Um, sorry to get into. I started in IRC in 1998 and learned all this stuff a very, very long time ago, and I don't remember some of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think like, you know, I the, the clients point, like, today are so nice and easy yeah. that you don't really have to know much. You just have to know the address right. of the server but and the port. The f- well, some of the most fun I ever had was learning how to do IRC manually using Telnet. <laughs> uh, hmm. Actually learning what's going back and forth from the client to the server and what it takes to connect manually. Uh, I find that I found that very amusing. So, you know, your basic step, if you're connecting to the server, uh, specifically connect without SSL uh, and then run Wireshark and watch the messages going back and forth in Wireshark and see how they're actually formed. Mm. Uh, and you can actually kind of learn how it actually works. Yeah. Uh, and then the server to server protocol and stuff for IRC is really interesting. Um, so, right, when you have IRC, you have users connected to server A, which maybe is connected to server B, which then that's where, you know, user C is, right? Um, and then if you have a channel, so when you send a message to the channel, it goes from you to the first server, then that server knows what other users are in the channel. Uh, but it doesn't have to do, um, it doesn't do one-to-one. It doesn't have to send your message individually to each user. It just checks for each server that's connected to the server that just got your message it's like, are any of your users in this channel? If it is, it sends one copy of your message to that other server. If there's a server where uh, there are no users in, say, Jupyter Broadcasting in on that server, then the first server doesn't even send a copy of the message there. Then on the server that's, say, got 10 people that are in Jupyter Broadcasting, it sends your message individually to each of those 10 users. Uh, there's a, And so, yeah, uh, so IRC is kind of... Uh, it's a, a network, but not a mesh network. 
So, you know, we have a hub server and then there's a bunch of spoke servers around it. And we actually have one hub for North America and one for their, hmm. uh, Europe. So there's like two uh, big servers that are connected together and then they have spokes coming off of them on the outside. And users connect to those spokes and the messages go back and forth across the network. That's why it's called internet relay chat because you don't send a message from me. I don't send a message from me to Rakai. I send a message from me to a server that sends it to another server that sends it to Rakai. The message is relayed through these mm. nodes to get to Rakai. Uh, so will you explain, because the chat room is asking, can you explain what a net split is? This might be something yeah. that an IRC newbie is not familiar with. Right. So, uh, like we said, we have these hubs with spokes. And say there's 100 users on this spoke and 100 users on this spoke and 100 users on the spoke in Europe. If the connection between the two hubs breaks because, you know, an internet connection flaps or who knows what happens, right? Outages happen and, and they cause a disconnect. Now, uh, is from the view of the hub in North America, every user in Europe has just disconnected. Mm. Right, so it shows all those people signing off all at once. Now, the users on spoke one and spoke two in North America can still see each other and talk to each other, and all the users in Europe can see all the other users in Europe and talk to each other. <laughs> that right. server's still up, but the connection between has been severed. And then our hubs automatically try to reconnect, and once they do, uh, from the perspective of everybody in North America, everybody in Europe just signs in again, like they just got here. But from the perspective of the people in Europe. It's everybody from North America that just logged in. And it just just giant flood as 200 people rejoined the chat room. Yeah. I definitely want to uh, double the recommendation to check out uh, the uh, commands that are linked in the show notes because a lot of times you're going to find all of a sudden you need to identify yourself or you need to yeah, register so, your nick to PM and things like that. And those commands are all in here. So when IRC was originally developed in the 70s, mm-hmm. it was an extension of talk. So on Unix, huh. uh, back in the mainframe days, where there'd be like 100 users logging into one server, uh-huh. there was a talk command where you could use to talk to one other user. Uh-huh. And eventually they wanted to have a way to do uh, multiple people. So they kind of extended that. But then there's like, well, there's a mainframe at this school, but there's a second mainframe at that other school. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could all talk to each other? So then that's basically how IRC got invented. And there would be one server at each university. It was like the mainframe. And all the users would connect to the, the IRC server that was the machine they're already using, uh, and then the machines were networked together. And this allowed users at one university to talk to users at another university. Um, And channels were ephemeral, right? Basically, the first person to join the channel created the channel, and if other people joined, they could there and they would talk. And then once everybody leaves the channel, it gets deleted and goes away. And there was no permanence. And people didn't really pick their username. Their username was what they logged in as, like what their actual Unix login name was. That's why if when you see someone log in on IRC, it's usually in the form of nickname and then username at hostname. Because back in the day, it would have, I mean, you know, my name would have been Alan, which is Alan Jude at freebsd.org or at, you know, some university.edu. Um, so then over time, we extended this. Uh, some networks do. Like there are many different IRC networks. Some of them don't have any services like EFNet. Some of them do. So like on Freenode and GeekShed, uh, we have the concept of services, which are like NickServe, which allows you to password protect your nickname. Because anybody can just connect and show up and pretend to be Alan. Uh, mm. I've registered the name Alan with a password. And if anybody else tries to use it, after 60 seconds, it'll change their name to unidentified. Um, and if they keep trying to use it, it'll actually bring up a uh, 
a, rob- a bot user, a fake user, with my name to stop anybody from using my name until I get there and provide the password to make the bot go away and then use that name myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there's NickServe, which allows you to register a nickname and protect it with a password. There's also MemoServe, which allows you to send messages to people who aren't online. But basically, the bot will hold on to the message and then relay it to the person when they log in. Um, and then there's ChanServe, which allows us to have channels where... Just because I sign off, because my internet connection hicked up, or maybe you know I turn off my computer for the night, uh, when I come back, it will remember that hey, it was actually you that created this channel, so you get to be in charge, to decide who gets to kick people and so on. Because hmm. uh, originally that was just based on who created the channel, whoever showed up first had op status, and maybe they could give it to some other people, but if they ever lost it, because you know all the people that had it uh, logged out at one time or a net split. Uh, then the only way to get it back was for everybody to leave the room and the right person to recreate the room, meaning that someone else could end up in charge and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then start kicking people. You know, there, there used to be a whole thing back in the uh, 90s and 2000s of actually taking over an IRC room and kicking out all the original people and being like, ha, ah, I'm the king of the hill now. But then we got services uh, that enforce you know, a longer-term ownership thing. Mm-hmm. Alan, that's a great explanation. Thank you, sir. Uh, you're a good person to ask about that. Now, uh, we won't, if my math is right, we won't be live next week, but you right. still can send your questions. We're just, we're, we'll still have an episode for you, but uh, it's the holidays. Um, but you can still send in your questions and queue them up. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and uh, choose TechSnap from the dropdown and then ask away. You can also email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Just make sure that... Uh, you put something in the subject line that'll catch my eye, I suppose. Okay, well, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup stories, it just didn't fit at the top of the show, but you know what? we thought we'd give you some links to follow up on your own after the show, and some of these links came from our intelligence network over at techsnap.reddit.com. And I thought about this first story... In terms of what I would like, and I, it dawned on me, I, I never even considered this, and this seems like me such either. an obvious request. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so 150 filmmakers have come together to ask a bunch of different Canyon manufacturers, including Nikon and Canon, to sell their cameras with the option to encrypt the, the uh, oh, <laughs> wire just cut me off because I have an ad blocker. Yep. Uh, yeah, so it's the Freedom of the Press Association and, uh, sorry, Freedom of Press Foundation and yeah. all these. Uh, it's got Lawyer Poitras uh, in there. Uh, Snowden is uh, is yeah. a board member of it, and they're just saying, "Hey, look, you know, we want to be able to go out there and do these documentaries in places like Russia, and we want to be able to uh, not worry that when the authorities grab our fo- phones or cameras or whatever, I guess it'd probably be just mostly their cameras." Um, <laughs> wired, yeah. wired's the so. worst. <laughs> look at, now, now I'm getting a full screen. Thank you for turning off the ad blocker. This is this is such a commentary on our discussion earlier. Yes. Um, but yeah, so the idea is that you're taking pictures of a protest or something that, you know, maybe is illegal in the country you're taking it in. Uh, so there's two things there. A, as the journalist, you can get in trouble. But B, you could also get in trouble the people whose picture was taken because uh, you maybe have proof that they were at the protest. Um, so by having the camera encrypt all the photos and make it so you can't view the photos without the, the decryption key, uh, it gives the journalist some hope that they might actually be able to stop the authorities from getting the pictures off the phone. Yeah, or, uh, you know... But like, it also helps, you know, you know, I can see this the paparazzi so they don't steal each other's cameras or something. Yeah, or, you know, maybe you're just taking intimate photos at home. I don't know. There's lots of reasons to yeah, want encryption on your camera. There's lots of reasons camera. to have... Uh, yeah, 
I can also understand why the camera companies be like, yeah, but we're just going to get so many desperate emails from photographers who lost their encryption well, key and like, oh, the sure. photos are my whole life. And if I don't get those photos, I'll lose my job. It's and like, they're, sorry, they're it's pushing the CPUs and stuff in those cameras pretty hard already. And the battery life's already a little weak and it's always yeah. trade-offs. Uh, but, but if you turn it on. all that complicated? Like yeah. ASGZM is. You could put probably a hardware accelerated chip in there and charge for a little more for the camera too. Yeah, uh, you know, ARM64 chip or something that can do AES and I, and you're all set. Hmm. All right, how about this one? How about this is not looking too good? An old Linux kernel code execution flaw has been patched, but I think it goes back to like 2011, Ellen, which uh, uh, I'm getting sick of these. And no, we're not talking about Dirty Cow. It's like an entirely different one. It's like some no, sort this of. This one is uh, swapping out a socket when it's not expecting it could allow you to do privilege escalation and escape a yeah. container. Yeah. Uh yeah, people uh, there, uh, Pedersen, the researcher, was able to open a root shell on Ubuntu 16.04 system and also uh, bypass the supervisor mode execution prevention. <laughs> yeah, so breaking out of a container and getting root on a box. So, mm. yeah, good mm. job, Docker. So it's uh, – but it's been patched. That's good. Um, you know, one thing that doesn't really come up on this show is this whole situation with Fitbit buying Pebble. But there is yep. an interesting server well, side to it, this. You know, there's also the side – you know, we've seen the same thing with uh, – the what company did Nest buy? Oh yeah, like the the and smart hub thing, room. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of times, like in this particular case, we see that Fitbit's point of buying Pebble was mostly a to poach some of the people and b to push this competing product into the ground. Yeah. Now they say they're going to try to do a couple of things. Uh, they're going to leave the servers online through 2017. They're going to keep allowing people to download the SDK and APIs and firmwares are going to still be available for download. Uh, the developer but portal will still be online. no future development. Right. So you can keep writing apps for it, but nobody in their right mind is going to buy a new Pebble, so you'd be wasting your time. Yeah, they say Pebble and developers so if you are... have a Pebble, you're basically screwed. It's like, you know, January 1st, 2018, they're probably going to turn the server off. Yeah. Uh, and then you'll have this, you know, overpriced watch paperweight. Here's something that uh, they're doing, which I think is nobody's going to develop apps for it anymore. This is going to have to become more common is look at this. They say our first action to preserve the Pebble experience far into the future will be to update our mobile apps, loosening their dependency on a patchwork of cloud services like authentication, analytics, app locker, etc. So they're going to have an update in the coming months that decouples their so software it, with their it cloud services. Less on them running the servers so they can stop running the servers, but yeah. not break the app quite so much. But how about you ship it like that to begin with, first of all? Second of yeah, all, so, I, I think that should be a trend that takes off with most products that shut down. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, most products are shutting down. They have no interest in spending money on keeping it working for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if they continue, if they want to keep getting your business, maybe. And maybe in this case, it's Fitbit wants people to think that their Fitbit's not going to have this problem in the future. But, yeah. Got a, got a tool here for the Active yeah. Directory heads, huh? A Bloodhound. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is a tool to analyze and understand the actor directory trust relationships between multiple domains and so on. Cool. So a bunch of interesting videos in here. And it just, you know, if you happen to work in a Microsoft environment where you deal with actor directory all the time and, you know, transitive trust and, and so on, uh, it's definitely uh, seems like an interesting tool. Yeah. This uh, Evernote uh, pol- privacy policies kind of got me a little upset, and I thought maybe some of our listeners might use Evernote for some of their documentation and notes and whatnot. The policy changes have to do with machine learning, which Evernote says it's using to help you get the most out of Evernote. Uh, the latest update of the privacy policy allows some Evernote employees to exercise oversight of machine learning technologies applied to content, meaning that while they are di- while they're troubleshooting technical issues, they can read users' notes. 
They well, it sounds like they're also hoping to build a machine learning thing kind of like Google's where they can read your notes, figure out what you want and be like, oh, you're making your shopping list. Last week you wanted eggs. Do you want eggs again this week? I mean, it could be useful uh, to a degree. Uh, Evernote claims yeah. only a limited number of employees who have undergone background checks will be able to access the user data and the user is going to encrypt notes they consider sensitive to prevent employees from reading them. I, you yeah, know what I would but love if I is... remember to encrypt each note, then... You know what I would love about Evernote is a way for them to build. I, w- I wish they didn't even have the ability to read my notes. Wouldn't that be cool if it was stored in a way? But yeah, I guess that's not really possible like with their service. For notes. Yeah, but it's probably well, the way they the way their service works. It's probably well, not you can just have them encrypted by a key that's only on your phone or something. Yeah. And yeah. But the problem is people want an easy service where they can add a device without having to yeah. manually somehow transfer a key. Well, and they're super nice. There's, so then they're like, well, we'll we'll store the encryption key in your Evernote account. It's like, but then you have right. access to my encryption keys so right. you can decrypt stuff. That doesn't work either. Evernote has some nice features. You know, when I'm traveling, I can take pictures of business signs and it OCRs all the text and I can look them up later and it's got the GPS location where I was at. And it's very handy for some of that stuff and like business cards and whatnot. And also users can opt out of having their notes reviewed for machine learning purposes. Uh, but no user can opt out of having their notes read altogether. Employees can also read notes to investigate versions of the company's terms of violations, I'm sorry, of the company's terms of service. Well, what am I going to put in my notes that would violate their terms of and service? And for court order. I don't know. Probably to, to porn, do list. porn. Kill Chris Fisher. Yeah, stuff like that and child porn probably or terrorist bombs. I don't know, you know. Ingredients so, for the bomb. <laughs> yeah. Remember how we were talking about the Yahoo deal earlier? This is sort of a just a follow-up to that. Verizon is now exploring either lowering the price or exiting from their deal to purchase Yahoo. Yeah. yeah. So this is basically just showing that, you know, these hacks actually have consequences. And a lot of times we've seen that they don't, right? Where, you know, uh company announces got hacked, their stock price drops for five minutes and then goes back to normal. Uh but in this case, you know, a, a deal for this is going to be like four plus billion dollars for Verizon to buy Yahoo. And now that price is probably going to be lower <laughs> or the deal's not going to happen at yeah, all. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Yahoo got hacked back to back to back. It turns out years ago and they didn't notice. Yeah, Verizon might be about to get a very good deal, which is probably a good thing for them because it's probably going to work out horribly. Now, this next story, not a surprise. Buying AOL went great, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you know what's funny? It's the AOL division of Verizon that's overseeing this purchase. Isn't that ironic? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this next story isn't going to surprise anybody that listens to this show, but I think it's another data point. IBM has done a uh, study, and they found that most businesses just pay for ransomware demand- demands. The 30-page IBM security study surveyed about 600 business leaders and 1,000-ish consumers in the U.S. 46% of respondents reported that they had experienced ransomware in their organization. Of the 46%, 70% admitted that they paid the ransom. The amount paid to ransomware attackers varies, but those business responders that responded said that uh, 20% paid over 40000 25 paid over 20000 and 40000 and 11% paid between ten dollars and $20,000. Yeah. Uh, which usually goes to show is because they didn't have good backups. Yeah. There's Otherwise, also, they wouldn't have had to pay. We covered a study in November from Sentinel-1 about this, too, that sort of reported on the same exact thing. Uh, motherboard. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, people need... Uh, proper backups, and if you have a file yes. system like ZFS has snapshots, mm-hmm. in addition to your backups, you still need backups. Snapshots are not backups, but it allows you to revert to uh, very quickly, yeah. revert to before the yep. thing. But the nice thing with ZFS is what you do is you actually clone the snapshot and make a new file system that is the not encrypted one, and then do the mount swapping to make that the live file system. But it allows you to keep the one that's partially encrypted 
so that you can manually extract, say, individual files that have changed since the last snapshot but didn't get encrypted yet. So you can actually undo some lost work. Sure. So while you can recover within 10 or 15 minutes of, uh, getting, of figuring out that you got crypto lockered, you can also, um, you know, if you didn't find out until, say, the next morning and it had all night to run, but, you know, at the end of the day yesterday, somebody did some work that they really like to keep that maybe didn't get encrypted, you can actually manage to, by using even a series of snapshots, extract individual bits and reassemble the file system, but get most of your files back within a couple of minutes. Yeah, man. That's awesome. Having that ability to do both really uh, makes it easier. Yeah, and it is really ransom. The ransom fee is really a fee for not having a good backup. That's really what you're not paying because you got your files encrypted. You're paying because you didn't have a good backup. Fascinating. Yeah, you didn't have a way to recover from it other than paying to get your files back. Yep. Uh, This is an interesting one. Newly uncovered sites suggest the NSA exploits are available for direct sale. Go get it, everybody. So, uh, Shadow Brokers, uh, remember, we're going to have this big auction for like a million dollars or something to sell all the NSA exploits? Yeah. Well, not enough people were interested. So they've broken them up and now have each individual exploit for sale for somewhere between one, which is about $78 US, to 100 bitcoins, or you can pay $1,000 and get the whole lot. (laughs) So they lowered the price a little bit to about, uh, you know, three quarters of a million dollars, but it also allowed you to buy individual uh, ones by their funny names. You read off a couple of the funny names because they're pretty Like, uh, Like Catflap? That's a good one. Cat flap. That's not bad. Dewdrop. Uh, dub moat. <laughs> Early shovel. <laughs> and so on. Yep. Elated monkey. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. Go get it now. Uh, the prices are good. And the Bitcoin value could be going up. So you never know. Uh, this, one's, this, one's, uh, this one's no good. Uh, the, the headline made you, made you really kind of cringe. Colonel panic, only it's C-O-L-O. You know, like the like the KFC kernel, the loyalty card club system for the uh, KFC, and I think it's Canada. Oh no, it's the UK. Well, you know, same thing uh, has been targeted, and several candidates have been compromised. Apparently, there's 1.2 million members of the Colonel's Club. <laughs> you can cash in your chicken stamps. <laughs> I hope they give you extra chicken stamps now that they got hacked. And of course, there's an app for it too. As a result of an automated software attempt to guess the Kernel Club's members' passwords, we've implemented changes to our back-end and front-end systems. One thing customers may notice is the addition of a CAPTCHA <laughs> on the website. Which yeah, uh, So basically, they didn't have any rate limiting on brute force attempts. So somebody just set some bots to work on just guessing passwords constantly uh, and compromised a bunch of accounts. So they're like, oh, after three failed logins attempts, we'll throw up a CAPTCHA and that'll stop the bots. Holy cow, like, look at this. Should have thought of that first. This is this is a hell of a link. This is a flowchart of boot failure troubleshooting, and uh, wow, so, yeah, well, that's one of those flowcharts. Is my computer won't boot, and it, you follow the flowchart and help figure it out. Uh, but there's also like my hard drive is dying, and it lets you walk through different possible resolutions mm, to network that. Network hardware stuff. diagnostics, uh, d- uh, burner problems for your CD motherboard, CPU, RAM performance. This is really cool. Alan. Mm-hmm. Print this thing out. Put it up on a wall in an IT department, right? Yeah. That's really cool. Okay. And our last story in the roundup. Uh, this is a good one. You get stuck with ransomware. Here's how you get out of it. Infect some friends or maybe enemies. Uh, this new ransomware lets you decrypt your files by infecting other users. The malware is dubbed Popcorn Time, which hmm, it locks your Windows computers with strong AES-256 encryption until you pay a ransom of one Bitcoin which is about $775 right now, U.S. The lock screen will let victims unlock the files the nasty way by sharing a link with two other people. 
presumably ones the victims doesn't doesn't like, I would guess. Uh, and if they become infected and they pay, the original victim will receive a free decryption key. So they've turned ransomware into a pyramid scheme. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? Uh, it's like, oh, you don't want to pay? Get two of your friends to pay, and we'll give you yours for free. The TechSnap audience already has a uh, suggestion. You, the one way you could do it if you're willing to pay, uh, I, they, people were speculating about doing it in VMs, but the issue is is they have to see the actual transaction happen. So uh, that's, a, that's a particularly tricky one. And if you think about it, who are you going to send it to? You have to know the people. You have to know who to send it to. So it's, Well, you can send it to random people too. But That's dirty play. That is dirty play. So that's, uh, and it's called Popcorn Time, which is also a popular way to torrent movies off the internet. So it's probably going to have a few drive-bys that we're not looking for, 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 for that bad time. If you'd like to submit a story to our roundup, go over to techsnap.reddit.com. Now remember, we won't be live next week, but you can always check us at the calendar. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, and all of our show lifetimes are there. And we convert them to your local time, which is nice and easy yes. and automated. Uh, then we have the contact page where you can send us in your feedback. We've mentioned the subreddit. You can watch it live at jblive.tv. But the real, the real trick is just get the RSS feed, and then you just get it every single week. You just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, find TechSnap. This is 297. You'll get all the show notes and links for direct download and feeds. And if you watch this over on YouTube and you've made it this far, give us a nice thumbs up and maybe come back next week and get the next episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.